This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 568 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jim McDonald. Now, Jim has a unique path as a strength and conditioning coach for multiple sports teams, including the LA Angels and the Colorado Rockies, but then transitioned into the fire service. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into strength and conditioning, training high-level sporting athletes, his journey into the fire service, training the tactical athlete, and so much more. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jim McDonald. Enjoy. Well, Jim, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you and listening to your podcast and all the amazing people that you have on. And I'm just excited to be able to share some info and 
and uh, try and help out if I can. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be an interesting perspective coming from strength and conditioning first and then going into the fire service. I don't think... I've got a lot of friends that are, are very, very good trainers, sort of high-level athletes, but I'm not sure if I had anyone that spent like a full career in conditioning before they came in. So it's going to be a great conversation. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I live in Arvada, Colorado. And uh, it, it decided to be winter yesterday for the first time this year. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's been weird. It's been in the 60s. And uh, now it's a little bit more temperate today in, in the mid thirties. So, very cool. Yeah, we um, we actually had a cold spell recently here in Florida, which you know it doesn't, we're not going to see snow out my window. I'll tell you that now. But um, it was down <laughs> in the the thirties in the evening, so it was gorgeous because we had the blue skies. But uh, yeah, I do miss the Colorado skiing, though. I got to say, yeah, I I miss the beaches though. So <laughs> we got we could uh, swap a visit or something. There we go. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'd have to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. I have one sibling, a sister. She's younger than me by four years. And then uh, my parents um, are born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa as well and still there. So um, family dynamics, you know, couldn't have really asked for, I guess, anything better. Um, amazing parents, very supportive and loving. Um, same thing with my sister, um, very close with my family. Uh, I guess that's somewhat typical for, for the Midwest, I guess, uh, growing up in the Midwest, but very close niche family with my immediate family. And then as well with my extended family, um, spending holidays and, you know, a lot of time together growing up and doing things. Um, and that's kind of in a nutshell real quick. What did your parents do? Um, so my, my dad owns a car dealership, a used car dealership. So, um, I've been teased about that growing up, right? The whole used car dealer, uh, (laughs) stories and all the stuff that you hear. Um, but actually I spent a lot of time with him growing up working uh, and he he taught me a lot about doing things correctly, as opposed to a lot of the other horror stories you hear of used car dealerships and, and stuff like that. So integrity, doing the right thing, treating customers right, um, just a slew of things. I could talk forever about that. But uh, And then my mom worked um, a few different jobs, John Deere Engineering, uh, Wells Fargo. And now she's working for, um, I don't remember, but some large trash company. She's working in the office, administrative stuff, executive office stuff. Um, and she she did that and carried the insurance for the family since my dad has his own business, you know. Um, so I guess that's kind of the short end of it, but uh, that's kind of my background. That's pretty sad, though, when you think about it, that, you know, a couple who both work that health insurance or health coverage is still an issue in 2021 in the richest country in the world. Yeah. And my mom, my parents are fairly young. They're 63. They got a couple years uh, left before retirement. And uh, I mean, that's really why my, my mom has worked. Um, I mean, she wanted her own career, um, but really she worked for health benefits throughout 
you know, our, our entire life really, and still doing that now for my parents. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about that dynamic that, uh, you know, for a small business, um, you know, that my dad owns, it's hard to have good insurance that you can actually afford. It's not affordable. Um, so for that reason, you know, that was part of the reason why she always worked was to carry good health insurance. So yeah, that's a, that's another entire conversation, and I always speak <laughs> yeah. spe- speak fondly about England. But you know, there's there's varying perspectives on that system. I can tell you from my entire experience of you know as a child all the way through to losing my grandfather to cancer, it's been amazing. And the one thing that British people don't have to think about is the cost, is the money. Can I afford insurance? It's all built in. Now, are the government amazing at running it? No. Absolutely not. But is the philosophy, is the system that we take care of each other in a country the best system in the world? I, I truly think so. Like, you know, you, you get cancer, you get hit by a car, you have a heart attack. You're not asked for your social security number. You're asked, you know, for the medical details to save your life. And I think that's an important, uh, important kind of perspective for us to consider maybe moving forward in this country as well. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Unfortunately, my dad just had to have some heart surgery. And uh, luckily enough, they're they're blessed to be okay, financially and healthy. But yeah, that was definitely a, a question that my dad had. Um, it wasn't a it wasn't a sudden heart attack. Um, it was a, a planned out thing. But when you have to worry about how much money it's going to cost you out of pocket, even when you do have really good insurance, um, it's still a substantial amount of money when you're talking about open heart surgery, and uh, it, it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially, you know, we're going to get into the, the prevention side, you know, we're going to talk about strength and conditioning and nutrition. And, you know, I think if there was a real push for that, there would be a lot of, you know, staff, hospital beds, funding available for the acute emergencies, you know, and, and we'd be able to take care of our people better. But sadly, as as I heard you talk about, it's interesting. You mentioned 70% of obesity and overweight in the fire service well that's the national rate as well so yeah but even in our profession that's you know stronger faster fitter you know we suffer from that so yeah that's that's a huge drain i think on on our medical system and it doesn't leave a lot for the people who truly need the help yeah i agree so speaking of des moines when i think of that i think of matt hughes pat militich wrestling mma so what kind of sports were you playing or doing growing up yeah so i kind of played everything all right i tried it all um i grew up uh playing baseball tried basketball i loved football uh i raced motocross for about 13 or 14 years that was really my main sport growing up um i planned and dreamed of being a professional motocross <laughs> racer <laughs> like a lot of kids uh and uh, that was that was really my main sport, but I played all kinds of different sports in high school and college. I tried wrestling. Um, college, I didn't. It was just rec stuff. I I wasn't uh, good enough or large enough, big enough to play um, Division One sports. I went to Iowa State, so um, yeah, I, I kind of played everything and enjoyed everything, um, and just try to be a well-rounded athlete. Um, and try everything because a lot of my friends got specialized early on. And I learned a lot about that being in strength and conditioning and the society that we live in now and all these club sports and everything for all the kids. Um, and my parents thought it was good for me to try whatever I wanted. So 
I played base basketball, baseball, football, ran track and field in high school. And then, uh, you know, my main sport was motocross. I really loved that. It was a family, a family, you know, outing and get together. I practiced throughout the week. And then on this, on Sundays, we would load up and go, go to the races as a family and then spend the whole day together, uh, watching the races. And then, you know, my family would obviously watch me when I raced. Um, and then at some point I had to give that dream up, you know, uh, when I had to decide to go to college or keep trying to, to be a professional motocross racer. And I was good, but I mean, let's, we all know, like being in a, a professional athlete in any sports the you know, top 1%. So even though I won state championships and, and placed well in like the Midwest region and the AMA motocross outdoor series and all that good stuff, like being good and then being good enough to be a professional and make money at it is uh, definitely different. And then growing up in Iowa, of course, the motocross season's much shorter than if you're living in California or Florida, a different part of the country where you can ride and, and race all year where you can't really do that in Iowa. So I enjoyed a lot of sports and had fun growing up. <laughs> well, with your, you know, your coaching background, we'll kind of jump forward for a second. I've had a lot of people on here that talk about um, multi-sport athletes not only performing better in whatever sport they end up with, but also because there's not that overuse element of just doing a singular sport over and over and over again, they saw a lot more physical resilience, a lot more you know, reduction in injuries from these multi-sport athletes. So what has been your perspective, let's say, of, of the younger athletes, of the power of doing more than one sport rather than just playing baseball, for example, 12 months a year? Yeah, I think there's a whole slew of different advantages the more sports that you're going to play, the more teams you're going to be on, the, the different team dynamics that you're going to see, the different coaching styles that you're going to see. And then just from a, from a sports-specific area, different sports have different you know, planes of motions, different uh, positions, and doing that and having a variety of different activities that you're going to do is going to make you a better overall athlete not only for injury but for performance as well because you're doing all kinds of different movement patterns your training should be different for baseball to football to basketball to soccer um, so i believe the more sports that you can play the better and then you also have the psychological stuff now with kiddos being so young and getting stuck into traveling baseball or traveling hockey or whatever it may be right for one, for the parents, it's super expensive. Um, I mean, it's a business for these for these companies, right? Um, it's super expensive to travel. Um, and then kids get burnt out. So, I mean, I played baseball when I was younger. I wasn't really pushed to play it, but that was the sport. My uncle was very good at baseball. Um, my dad loved baseball, and I, I played it a lot. And I kind of got burnt out because I did it so much and I wanted to race motocross and try other sports. So, you know, for me personally, I can see from what I went through as an athlete, uh, I just don't think there's a whole lot of positivity, um, for that, the young athletes, the parents, and then from a injury prevention in their, in their careers too. 
um, you, you got nine-year-old kids or 10-year-old, whatever the age is, and they're playing traveling baseball, it's only a matter of time before you have a serious injury because you're playing so much as a young kid. You're still developing. You're not even hitting, you know, puberty yet. Like there's just all kinds of research and data out there to support for many different reasons that getting specialized early, uh, I, I don't think is appropriate. <laughs> no. Well, with the travel ball element as well, and, I, and maybe I'm just completely naive, but to me, for example, let's say you're a young baseball player in Florida, the notion that you should jump on a bus and go to Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, because why? You're telling me there aren't enough great other young baseball players to challenge you in your area that's the part that i understand if you if you are in in let's say rural iowa and you have to tr- yeah. really travel to, to different counties to really challenge yourself i totally get it but you know so many places that I, i've heard my friends put their kids in travel ball are in california in florida in these densely populated states that you just have to go up a county and probably find an extremely challenging team you know so i, I don't understand that Let's ship our kids, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to go play random schools in different states. Yeah, and to me, that's that's where the business side of it comes into it. You know, I think early on, there might have been some genuine thought process behind it. But these companies that have these travel leagues, I mean, there's no other way to say it. I mean, it's a business. It's super expensive for these parents to be paying for all these traveling um, teams, airline tickets, bus tickets, you know, playing gear, all that stuff. Right. Um, And you're absolutely right. There's, I mean, you said it, unless you're in a small town and there's not competition, but if you live in any major city or inner city area, there's kids and, and people around to challenge you enough. There's no need to travel hundreds of miles or fly and, and do all that. So, Unfortunately, it's just the, you know, the, the beast of American culture of money, money, money and greed. And it's a business. That's all it is. Um, And I, I seen that working in college and professional sports. I don't, I don't think the average person really understands uh, how cutthroat and nasty um, collegiate and professional sports are, uh, behind the scenes and what athletes have to go through, what coaches go through relocation, the stress of keeping your job. Um, there's just a lot of stuff <laughs> that most people don't understand and never see. And even though you talk about it with some people and they, they're like, Oh yeah, I get it. But you, you don't get it unless you've really lived it and seen it. Uh, it's hard to explain really, but unless you've done it and seen it and really, see the impact that it has on people. Uh, It's a nasty business, unfortunately. That's really what it comes down to. And I don't want to be negative, but I also don't want to discount the reality of, of that. It's a business at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I talk about this too, you know, where's that line between performance and longevity, you know, whether it's our children's, you know, physical health, mental health, you know, like you said, even, um, expectations to go on and be pro and that never be you know achieved whatever it is but i see as as an englishman you know looking through english eyes at american sports these kids that peak it might be high school it might be college and are phenomenal 
But then there's this giant drop-off. What I saw back home was there are some amazing football players, soccer players, that go off into the, the Premier League and you know all these different leagues. But the rest of us just keep playing. You know, you'll see adult leagues, you'll see pub leagues, you'll see all this where, you know, 40, 50 year old men and or women are still playing sports. And I think this elitism has almost like kind of blown up in their face because what it's created is, is a, a lack of momentum to carry on enjoying sports after education. I think because so much pressure was put on winning during the collegiate and high school time. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's a huge emphasis on winning and it goes back to the business, unfortunately. So even, even in high school, um, you know, strength coaches, if you have a strength coach, which is, you know, getting fairly popular now to have strength coaches, depending on where you live as well, but strength coaches, uh, athletic directors, I mean, these, these people have a tremendous amount of pressure underneath of them from the high school and collegiate levels to win to bring money into the school. Um, and that's where the, the, you know, that drive to win is, yeah, of course we all want to win, but you should be enjoying playing sports and having fun. Right. And I think that a lot of institutions and places have put an emphasis on winning to earn money for the school. And we forgot that this is to have fun and enjoy it and have fun on the team and have the team dynamics, have friends and enjoy the physical activity of it. Right. Like I think we've lost a lot of that because unfortunately everything's, it's a business. It's, it really is. It's sad to say, but I, I keep saying the same thing, but it's because it, it's unfortunate truth. The unfortunate truth, you know, mm -hmm. well, even the education itself. I mean, what I found maddening, is, for example, the prereqs. You know, someone's going on to be, like my wife's in optometry school now, but, you know, you name a number of professions that don't need any, you know, an incredibly high level of math. So remove, you know, blooming astrophysicist or whatever, the rest of them, you know, and they're doing years of, of prereqs that don't really add anything to the actual career ladder. And then, you know, as a, as a parallel to that, you have welder, firefighter, nurse, where we go to school and we learn the exact trade that we need to go into. So it's not just the sport, the education itself, the, the prerequisite you have to take two years of classes that cost thousands of thousands of thousands of dollars before you can even walk through the door of said, you know, medical program, whatever it is. And I think that's another, you know, it's, it's greed. There's, there's no educational benefit. When I ask people about their degrees, like, well, it taught me how to organize, it taught me how to work hard. Well, that's not something that justifies a $50,000 student debt, you know? So yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I see that in the educational space. And I think the technical school schools, the trade schools are doing it right. That's the model that we should use on, on most professions. Yeah. We were talking about that the other day. My, my wife has a master's and we're still paying that off and it's just insane. Um, school, college, we're looking at financial investing for the kids, their college. We have two children and it's like 6% increase in tuition every year. By the time they go to school, a four-year degree is like 170,000. And I'm like, this is insane. Like this has to stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah man, that's literally the price of a house here. I spent 180,000 on my house. So, yeah. you know, and yeah. my degree, which I still haven't even picked up the piece of paper that says I have a degree yet from UF. But, you know, in all honesty, hand on my heart, 
Of course, I learned some things there. But overall, I think the only real power that a degree in exercise physiology from the University of Florida is when people go, who the fuck is this James Gearing guy talking about fitness on this podcast? Oh, okay, he's got a degree in ex-fizz. Now, I absolutely learned most of my stuff from you know, the NSCA. And actually, the NSCA CSCS, one of my classes was all the CSCS content. So that was my favorite class in UF. That would have prepared me actually to be a coach. But aside from that, most of the things have been from TSAC, from, you know, Strong First, from Strong Fit, from all these great organizations that are truly putting information out that you can get in, you know, a, a, a two-day class, a, a week seminar, whatever it is. Um, and my God, you think about all those kinds of seminars that you could kind of clock up with $50,000, you would have an absolute incredible wealth of knowledge from all strength and conditioning worlds versus sitting in a classroom being lectured about some very myopic topics in, you know, classic education. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, then I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> um, <laughs> with your uh, strength and conditioning, because obviously this would be an interesting insight, were you focusing on conditioning at the school age when you were racing? Was there any sort of training behind that? Yeah, so that's really how my career, you know, kind of got started was I was in sports. I'm a small dude. I'm, you know, 5'10", 170, 175. I've always been a small guy. So um, I had to, I, ha I started lifting weights um, in about seventh grade, 12, 13 years old. Um, reading muscle and fitness, of course, um, you know, reading the encyclopedia, uh, the Arnold encyclopedia, all the bodybuilding stuff. That's all they had back then. <laughs> so I read all that stuff and started lifting on my own. And then when I started racing motocross is when I like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta be in good shape to do this. Like people just think you get on a dirt bike and go. And it's like, no, you're doing a 30 minute moto and you got arm pump and, uh, you got to be in shape. So I really started diving into reading um, and training. And that was kind of how my interest in strength training peaked and kind of understood that maybe this is what I want to do for, for my career. There were other things though. I ended up starting out my college career as uh, an engineer. I love cars and making things with my hands. And so I started off in engineering and uh, just quickly realized that you don't really do a whole lot of the stuff that I liked as an engineer. You sit at a desk and design stuff and figure things out. And uh, that didn't fit my personality. So uh, I changed my degree um, and got into exercise science um, and, and went that route. So I think training, just being in sports um, and trying to be strong and good at playing sports is really what started my my love and interest for strength and conditioning. And it just took off from there. And firstly, when you started applying your own, you know, version of strength and conditioning from the resources that you could find, did you see an improvement in your performance on the track? I did. Yeah. I was, I was starting to read and figure things out. And I was talking to other racers, um, you know, and just, Hey, what do you guys do to train and how do you train? And, um, as I started learning more and applying it to myself and seeing results that my arm pump wasn't as bad as it was two or three months ago. Um, I wasn't as tired, uh, all the benefits from training, you know, I was like, Oh, this is, 
this is kind of cool. And then my friends are like, Hey, you know, how, how are you training? Because I can tell that you're, you're better. Like you're faster than me. I can't keep up with you anymore. Um, and so I started just helping my buddies out and that's just kind of how, how it started kind of, you know, just, I enjoyed helping people and helping them and enjoyed applying what I've learned and just kind of started from there and went, you know? So with the road to the NSEA, cause I think, you know, I've been exposed to quite a few different, um, you know, letter groups, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, organizations, yeah. um, and hands down NSCA to me, as far as organized, you know, strength and conditioning, uh, is amazing. I love CrossFit. I do that. I love strong fit, um, Julian Pinot's stuff. Um, I've just started doing Ben Patrick's knees over toes. So, I mean, there's all these great, you know, minds that you can pull from, but as far as, Actual strength conditioning, especially the TSAC side, focused towards tactical athlete, they are an organization that I think are phenomenal. So walk me through, you know, your entrance into strength and conditioning and then, you know, that kind of parallel journey when you found NSCA and started learning through them. Yeah, so I was going to Iowa State, got my bachelor's in um, exercise, sports science. And I think it was my sophomore year, um, I wanted to start personal training at the rec center and I needed certifications and I found the NSCA uh, through school and I got my CPT um, certified personal trainer from the NSCA and started training at the rec center while I was going to school. Um, so I've been a part of the NSCA since I think 2002 or three. Um, and then later on I got my CSCS and my, my TSAC as well. So I got a bunch of these, crazy letters that I can say I have. Um, but like you said earlier, these certifications are, are legit. Um, the NSCA used to have, you used to have to have a four-year degree to get their, um, certifications and, um, the business side of that stuff changed, right? So now anybody can, can go sign up and, and go through the course, which I think is great. Um, and like you said, it's very professional organization, a lot of amazing people, um, very knowledgeable, very educated, uh, and to work in professional and collegiate athletes, you have to be NSCA certified. Um, it's kind of the gold standard, and they have great educational programs, and you can really learn and understand and apply that uh, immediately to whatever profession, as far as you know, whatever field you're in, whether it's athletic training, personal training strength and conditioning, what it, whatever it is, you can apply it immediately. So um, that's kind of how I got involved with the NSCA. And, you know, the last two or three years, I've, I started giving back to the NSCA. I'm uh, on the Colorado State Advisory Board, helping set up um, local and regional conferences, and just trying to really, you know, give back because I've been part of it for so long and, and networked and met a lot of great people. Um, so just trying to give back and help educate really right now and in, in my quote strength and conditioning career. And that's, that's why I'm here. I, I just want to share my passion for strength and conditioning and try and help, you know, educate the tactical side of things specifically in fire of why we have these parameters, um, suggested, um, you know, NFPA standards, um, and really just help educate and spread knowledge uh, in the fire service. And that's really kind of my goal and my mission right now in my 
my career overall. So walk me through which roles you held, like which level of athlete you were working with and, and which sports, and then into your journey into the fire service. Yeah, so try and make this somewhat quick and not painful. But uh, yeah, I mean, I started out training um, while at Iowa State University in my undergrad. So I started out training, personal training, training athletes, training teachers, um, well, professors. Um, and then I got hooked up with the football team. And I would go in and volunteer and work for the football team. And I did that for three years. So I was able to work with Division One football um, very early on in my career because I was kind of tenacious and ruthless and didn't leave the strength coach alone. I'm like, dude, I'm going to school here. Like I'll get up and come help for free. I just want to learn. Um, and that's really how it started. Um, and then I graduated from Iowa state and I was lucky again, some hard work, uh, not giving up. And I got a job with the Colorado Rockies straight out of college. Um, I worked in the minor leagues as a strength and conditioning coach was able to work with the major league team as well. And, you know, learned a lot from uh, my, my boss at the time was Brian Jordan. I'm still connected with him and, and work with him, uh, you know, stay connected. He's here in Denver locally now. He uh, just opened a uh, strength and conditioning gym here. Um, I worked with the Anaheim Angels uh, as a minor league strength and conditioning coach again and was able to work with their major league team as well. Uh, I then moved into um, physical therapy um, and got away from professional sports. Um, like I said, it, it's a business and I was, I didn't really enjoy the, the, the lifestyle of moving around all the time and never being home, never having a location. Like I said, I grew up in Iowa, very close with my family. Um, I had a lot of personal goals and, and family life that I wanted to have and professional and collegiate sports and strength and conditioning did not give me the family dynamic and the lifestyle that I wanted someday. And I was young. I was in my early twenties and mid twenties when I worked in, you know, professional sports and it was hard to find friends and uh, girlfriends because I was on the road with professional baseball from February to October. Right. Um, so it was a really hard decision for me to get out of that because that's what I went to school for. That's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be a professional strength coach and there's nothing wrong with working in high school or personal training or whatever it is. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but me, the way my mind thought or my mind process worked was like, I wanted to work for a professional sports team and that's what I, that's what I wanted. Um, I, I, got out of professional sports and moved to Phoenix and worked in physical therapy clinic as a physical therapist assistant for a couple years, thought about going to school and we'd already talked about this, but I did not want to get a doctorate in physical therapy and have, you know, 50, $60,000 worth of debt to, to come out and make, you know, 70 or $80,000 as a PT and, and have to pay that back. Um, so I just, and again, it was a, a, more of an office job. That's just not my thing. So, um, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and what, what I wanted to be in my mid twenties. Um, I volunteered with the NFL team, the Arizona Cardinals while I was there, 
thought maybe football would be better. Um, again, it's just their, their businesses. Um, I was volunteering, working for free, learning a lot. Um, but actually getting a job, I mean, you just strength and conditioning is a grind. Um, and a lot of people like myself, um, it's not that I couldn't do it or didn't want to hang. I chose that I didn't want to do that. Right. Um, kind of sounds, I don't know what the right word is, but like, I felt like I had more to offer than the way I was being treated by teams and colleges. Um, and so I decided to, to get out of that. Um, and working in physical therapy was good. It gave me the stability, um, you know, that professional sports didn't. And I was able to figure out that, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to work in physical therapy either. So I wasn't really sure what to do at that point. Um, I had been in the industry for, you know, seven years at that point, And I tried all kinds of different things. Um, I moved back to Denver, Colorado, because I loved it. when I worked for the Rockies. I moved back here in 2008. And I wasn't sure what to do. You know, I'd already worked with the Rockies. Um, I had talked with the Nuggets and the Broncos. And it was just going to be the same, same thing, right? Um, and so I had no idea what to do with my life. And I ended up working in corporate America for the next seven years. Um, I worked for uh, Frito-Lay. So I went from professional sports to a snack chip company. Uh, that was an interesting transition. The plant manager was like, why do you want to work here? I'm like, well, you know, I'm looking for stability. I'm looking for a good financial career, good, good benefits and retirement, all the things that sports and, and strength and conditioning didn't give me. So he understood, but he was still pretty leery. And uh, again, I had to be tenacious and just keep, keep bugging him. And uh, finally, you know, got a job uh, being a manager. So I went from managing professional athletes and making programs, helping with nutrition, um, and then all the other ancillary jobs that you get as a strength and conditioning coach. And I took all that experience and just put it into corporate management and leadership for the next seven years. So I managed, you know, teams of 30 to 35 people on a production floor. I worked in production management and maintenance management, um, learned a lot. And it was great. It gave me the stability, financial stability, good benefits, good retirement, 401k match, all that good stuff that sports didn't. I was able to meet my wife during that time, um, buy a house and do all the things that I wanted to do that I wasn't able to on professional sports. I was able to keep my foot in the door, so to speak, with, with wellness. And I did corporate wellness um, there. So we had you know, 500 and some employees at that plant. And we had a lot of, you know, repetitive injuries from the production line that people were doing. So I was able to work with the plant manager and I started um, just a, a simple stretching routine um, before people would go on their shifts with bands and people would be doing you know, a, a 10 minute talk kind of before their shift of what was going on, what the goals were for the shift um, and what everybody needed to be doing. And while they were having this meeting, we just started doing band work to warm up, shoulder press, chest press, 
bicep curls, tricep press down, a few squats while we're talking um, to help get these uh, corporate athletes, so to speak, um, kind of primed up and ready to go work um, to help prevent injuries. Um, it was fun for these guys. Um, they thought it was cool since I had a background in professional sports. They thought it was a, a fun thing to do. Well, some of them, not all of them. Um, but uh, overall, it was it was well received. And uh, we started doing that at the at the plant. Um, I was able to help with, a, you know, bringing in a physical therapist at the plant um, to partner so that when people did get hurt, um, you know, they could go see the, the physical therapist on site and uh, the, the program kept, you know, evolving and flourishing, so to speak. Um, and about three or four years into that corporate gig, you know, I was like, man, I don't know if this is really what I want to do forever. And I'd always thought about the military and fire. Um, and I just kind of had, had went to school and did the whole college thing because I thought that's kind of what I was supposed to do. Um, my parents didn't push me. I was the first one to go to college in my family. It was something that I wanted to do and that that's what I thought I should do to be successful and, and uh, quote, live the American dream. And one day my wife, her friend, um, my wife played collegiate and professional rugby and her friend was a uh, Denver firefighter. And so was her husband. And we were, we were barbecuing one day and I was on call, of course, being in corporate management leadership. And they called me and we were talking and long story short, he was like, Hey, you should, you should come do a ride along. I think you'd be, I think you would enjoy firefighting and I think you'd like it and you'd be good at it. You have a lot to offer to bring to the fire service. And so I went and did a ride along with him and he was right. I thought it was the coolest thing. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the team camaraderie, um, the team atmosphere, not only growing up in athletics, but also being a coach, a strength coach in athletics, the, the team part of it was really cool to me. Um, and that was kind of it. I started doing EMT school at night after I was working, you know, my normal 60, 70 hours a week in corporate management. I, I went to EMT school at night and then I did my fire one immediately at another community college. Um, I started volunteering at uh, a small uh, combination department here in uh, Louisville, Colorado. I uh, volunteered there for about a year and a half. And then I got my first paid um, fire job again, at a smaller uh, rural fire department combination. And then um, a couple of, about two years later, um, I got on with the uh, current department that I work for, which is a, a large metropolitan uh, fire department here in Denver. And uh, I, I love it. So I know that was long winded, <laughs> but that was the last, that was the last 18 or 19 years of my life so <laughs> yeah no and it's a great perspective because you you like you said you've got the collegiate sporting athlete you've got a group that i never really thought about but yeah that repetitive injury of working on a production line you know that must be you know that must break down the human body you know sitting down all day you know doing the same thing with your hands over and over and over again so that was a unique perspective as well with that background though I know I heard you talking about the first department actually had a wellness initiative, second one didn't. Now you found yourself with this current one that is is renowned for having a very progressive wellness department in some areas. Um, 
what was your impression when you first entered the fire service of the demands of a firefighter and then the kind of strength and conditioning knowledge that was out there in our profession at the time? Yeah, it was really eye-opening to me. So, you know, growing up and playing all the different sports and being an athlete and then trying different things and then being in firefighting, like it's demanding. It is super hard physically, you know, mentally, emotionally, like it's, it's totally different. Um, and the lack of knowledge and understanding of training and what a firefighter should actually be doing um, compared to what a lot of people do and the, the lack of knowledge, not only of the firefighters, but also of the, the strength and conditioning community and how to apply that to firefighting or police and military. Um, I mean, it's a challenging environment, um, you know, from schedules and, and just all kinds of things. Um, but I was very surprised at the lack of, of knowledge and understanding from both sides on, on how to train appropriately. And, uh, you know, then there's lack of funding there's lack of support from, you know, chiefs and, and, and boards and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but overall, I was really surprised at, uh, the demands of firefighting from a physicality standpoint, and then just lack of knowledge and understanding of training, you know? Right now, before we get into the actual training side, cause I do want to really pick your mind on that. When you were training these high level collegiate and professional athletes, what was the focus on rest and recovery and sleep and all the non-gym, uh, you know, elements of, of growing from the previous training session to be bigger, faster, stronger the next day? Yeah, I mean, when you have those resources and you have people with high levels of education and understanding they're, that are basically telling you and feeding you what to do, right? So, hey, here's your workout for today. And you go do it. And oh, here's here's the recovery stuff that you need. You have all the nutrients. Um, the chef prepared your meal. Um, you have all the supplements that you need. Um, you know, you can go get a massage. You can go chill in the hyperbaric chamber. You can go get dry needling, acupuncture. You have all that stuff right there at your hands. Uh, is as a Division One athlete or a professional athlete. Um, if you choose to, there's a lot of people that, you know, don't choose to use a lot of this stuff, even at the division one or pro level. Um, but uh, most of the people do if they're smart for career longevity. Um, so, I mean, you have all that stuff there and you have the education, whereas in police, military and fire, um, you know, most, most places don't have the education knowledge and that stuff right there at their fingertips to share in and to give their personnel and their, their employees. So, Well, I think one of the biggest misnomers from the outside looking in is, wow, that firefighter shift schedule was amazing. One day on, two days off, you know, you get all that recovery time. You get inside yeah. that, that profession, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then you realize, oh, hold on a second, do the math. If an eight-hour day is a work day, 
you know, minus the, the lunch break, then it's three days on, one day off if you do a 2448. So we've basically hung ourselves on our own terminology. So did yeah. you have an aha moment like, my God, there's there's not the rest and recovery for, for these shift-working tactical athletes? Yeah, and that's something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you know, understanding the shift schedules and and how to program for that not only as a firefighter, like I understand I live it. I work a 4896 schedule. Um, my friends work 2448s. Um, some guys I know work, you know, 2472. Like there's so many different schedules out there. It doesn't matter which schedule you work. Um, it's hard to get recovery. It's hard to program and periodize appropriately to get the, the gains from training but then not have those residual effects when you're going to work, right? You, you want to train, but you can't be so sore from your leg workout that you can't perform. Um, there's all this great data that I have from these awesome researchers. Um, you know, Mark Abel at the University of Kentucky, Jay Dawes at University of Oklahoma. Um, there's all these great people out there doing great things with research. And I like the research because I want to be able to use scientific backed up data um, to that that's proven to try and share the knowledge. Um, but it's so hard to program. Um, there's, there's no right or wrong way. Uh, I'm just trying to share the, the information that I have from these professionals and my firsthand knowledge of not only being a strength coach, but now being a firefighter for the last six years, like I, I understand both sides of it because I've lived both sides and I'm just trying to, to, to make good decisions and help, uh, and share my passion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting with me and I'll give you a perfect example. We've talked about research. We talked about college and, you know, that whole world. Um, and coming from, you know, being a, an athlete myself, I competed for my university and, you know, I didn't have, like the support that you'd have in, a, in an American college, but I fought for the University of North London and um, King's College was one another one. So, you know, we fought at a university level and won medals and all that stuff um, and trained like an athlete, but just didn't have the facilities, the, the other things that you were talking about. So then you yeah. get into the fire service. And again, we are asked to do incredible things, you know, and, and you know, the fire, fire academy, I think is, it does a great job of giving us expectations of what the job is going to be like. Not all day, not every day. But worst case scenario, you will have 100 pounds of gear on your back. You will be climbing, you know, Denver, for example, you know, tens and tens and tens of stories of some of the high rises. So it's what most yeah. people can't do. And we have to get past that, you know, oh, I'll, I'll be all right on the day. But the other side of that equation is giving rest and recovery. And what drives me up the wall is when some, someone says, oh, James, you have studies to prove that, you know, a, a 2448 is, is worse than a 2472. And I'm like, please tell me you didn't just fucking ask me that. Do I have studies to show that one extra day of rest and recovery would benefit the physical and mental health of our first responders? No, because that would be a complete waste of money. <laughs> you know, it's called yeah. common sense. So, yes. you know, like you said, I think the 2472 should be the gold standard for the profession, period. I don't care if you're out in rural wherever and you run run call, you know, a month. Good for you. It's still a 42-hour work week. You know what I mean? Before yeah. hurricanes, earthquakes, everything else that calls us in. So with that eye, though, 
what impact do you think these, you know, these short recovery rates are having on not only the performance of our athletes, but also the longevity and resilience of our athletes? Yeah, I mean, I think like you're saying, it, it doesn't take rocket scientists, it doesn't take PhD professors to do the research. I agree with you, the 2472 schedule would would is the best schedule to work. Um, from a recovery side, I mean, we have all these horrible things that uh, as firefighters we get, right? Cancer, mental health. Uh, so, I mean, we can just go down a list of all these horrible things and recovery is... is is a big driver in all of these factors. Um, you know, a lot of my friends say, Oh yeah, you work two days and then you have four days off. Right. I'm like, yeah, I, I do. I work 48 hours straight. Like, yeah, I don't do, sleep. <laughs> do you, do you want to understand what that means? Right. Like, and even if you do sleep, you're at the fire station. Like I hear the other calls for the medics or, or the VC or whatever. Right. Like you're, you're up um, and your mind's, kind of wandering sometimes. Now, I personally don't feel like I sleep bad, but if you look at the research when you're at the fire department, um you, you don't sleep well, right? Your your central nervous system is activated, you're sympathetic, you're you're always ready to go, right? So you don't sleep well. Well, then I come home and I come straight home to my four and a half and two and a half year old. My wife works full time. So I get off shift at, at seven, I drive home. And when I get home at eight, I walk in the door and it's immediate dad time. Like I don't have break. I don't have a rest. If I got my butt kicked the night before, um, I have to wait until two 30 to take a nap with my kids because I have to, I have to be dad. Right. Um, and I want to, but that's the reality that firefighters live that people don't understand. Like, Oh yeah. Four days to recover. Well, yeah, but it's not like I'm going to the spa and getting massages and acupuncture and all that. Like I have a life, I have things to do. Um, and then I have to train in those four days um, to keep physically fit. And I have to eat properly and I have to sleep properly at home. And you have all these things and all these variables that go into it. Um, so rest and recovery is something that a lot of people, one, don't know what to do. And two, even if they know, do they have the resources, time, and money, um, and are they disciplined enough to do that within their life? And the answer is no. And that's why, unfortunately, we have all these you know diseases and factors and things that happen to us as firefighters throughout our career, um, and the poor rest and recovery just just drives all those things um, and and makes the disease processes and all the other problems that we have worse. Yeah. Well, and what's, uh, you know, what's powerful to me is I am in no way, no way, shape or form an expert in anything, literally zero. Um, but I have been able to bring on incredible minds, sleep researchers from the sporting world, from the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, you know, I mean, just, just all these different branches of tactical athletes, obviously, Law enforcement, police, I mean, excuse me, uh, fire, dispatch, we just don't have research in our professions, really, not much. Um, yeah. But when you have these other, um, like the military, for example, looking at sleep, pilots, naval, you know, naval captains really drilling down on that. And then you look at the sporting world and all the resources that are available. And then you look at the men and women that we asked to wake up at three in the morning, run into a burning building, come out, work a PD code, 
and you're going to work them into the ground. Like it doesn't make any sense. So I flog this topic like a dead horse and I'm out. I'm not a fireman anymore. I mean, I'm always be a fireman, yeah. but I'm not, you know, on shift anymore. But yeah. this is the elephant in the room on the mental health issue. This is the elephant in the room on the cancer issue. This is the elephant in the room on the musculoskeletal injury issue, you know, and I've got friends that are full of staples and pins because of their backs. I got friends that, you know, just every single thing we talked about, I know people that have, you know, had to leave the fire service because of it. And when there is a preventable element that just requires taking that money you're wasting at the end when you're destroying human beings and shoving it in at the beginning to staff an agency so you can give these men and women the rest and recovery between their shifts... That to me is a no-brainer, but it requires a leader with a set of balls or a female version of to say enough is enough. We got to start being proactive. This reactive stuff just isn't working. Yeah, yeah. I think the and, and I'm I'm still new to the fire service. I've only been in the fire service for seven years. So, um, I, but what I do know is that you know there's there's not a lot of standards. There's not a lot of um, support. Um, for for departments to make to make these changes and you're right unless you have a strong leader um with the right knowledge and and um equipment to make things happen it doesn't um and i'm fortunate where i work that we have great leadership and and things are things are happening and looking they're making the right changes and want to make the right changes um and that was one of the reasons i wanted to work where i do um so i hope that that continues to happen and and we're continuing to make strides in the fire service as well um, because schedules need to change. We need to have more recovery, and it does need to be more about the the, the firefighter uh, and how we can help make things better because we know right now that the way things are is not good for the longevity of a career or life after the fire service. So. Absolutely, all performance, and that's the thing. You yeah. know, like I said, would you want your favorite quarterback to be half asleep and get creamed by the defense every single time? No. Well, then why is it okay for someone to not sleep for 48 hours and then plow into a minivan at an intersection, you know, and then be called, you know, demonized on the on the media for blowing through a red light? You know, I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, I want to move on because, like I said, I I, I beat this <laughs> I beat this topic a lot. But getting someone from a high level sporting strength and conditioning perspective i think it's important to hear your your perspective as well um so one thing i want to talk about first then talk to me about vo2 max as um you know an initial bar and as a training tool for the tactical athlete yeah so this this all started for me you know probably about four or five years ago uh, when i was in the fire service sitting around the, the kitchen table and, and listen to the other firefighters talk about um, the standards of VO2 max. So we do a VO2 max, an annual test where I work. Um, and, you know, w- we both know, you know, the one, there's different data and things, how you want to talk about it. But statistically, the number one line of duty death in fire is sudden cardiac death. And it takes 40, 44 to 50% of the deaths each year. Um, so from my perspective of what I know of the fire service is that the NFPA came up with the standards of 1582 and 1583 to have, you know, 1582 is the, the medical, um, guidelines or recommendations to have an annual physical 
within that is a guideline for the VO2 max uh, with a, the minimum requirement of having a VO2 of 42 milliliters per kilogram per minute, which equates to 12 mets. And from what I understand, all the reading that I've done and people that I've talked to is this standard came out basically to try and help alleviate the, the sudden cardiac death or heart attacks that we're having in the fire service. So if you look from the statistical numbers and VO2 max is measuring your, your cardiovascular or your aerobic capacity and how well your cardiovascular system exchanges and uses oxygen. So the VO2 of 42 um, or 12 mets uh, is, is it's always tough for me to talk about this because I don't want to offend people, but at the same time, like it, it's a pretty low bar. Um, you know, it's a, it's a sedentary, you know, 18 to 25 year old male is what it comes down to. So if you're doing any type of physical activity, walking, lifting, running, exercising of any type, you should be able to have a VO2 max of 42 or 12 mets pretty easily. Um, but if you do, that also has a huge reduction in your cardiovascular risk um, because you're not sedentary, you're, you're up and moving around. Um, so that sudden cardiac death issue or problem that we have in the fire service is hugely alleviated or lessened if you have that base of, you know, of a VO2 of 42 or 12 mets. Um, so that's all the research that I know of that I've been looking at and reading at. And what I know as, you know, somebody with a, you know, a bachelor's in exercise sports science and my understanding of physiology and the cardiovascular system. Um, the other standard NFPA is 1583, which is basically just, you know, fitness standards um, where the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the American Council of Exercise came together and they tried to give some type of recommendation um, and guidelines on, you know, what a fitness program should look like for fire departments and their basic guidelines. But at least if you're a, a department and you have no idea what to do or where to start, um, you know, these are the guidelines and recommendations from the NFPA. Since there are no federal re regulations or standards or anything like it, at least they tried and they have, in my mind, I, I think it's a very good starting point and good recommendations um, for all departments to, to have an annual you know, medical evaluation, um, and, and also some fitness standards. And I'm just lucky where I work that we follow these and we have programs where we do have medical standards and we do have VO2 testing each year. Um, and we do have, you know, a great fitness, um, you know, program and wellness program. So now with, with your annual one, I, I had an interesting conversation just the other day with JMAC, John McLaughlin, who is one of the highest kind of on the rungs of the ladder in the crossfit world and he's a firefighter in south florida and his department um they have uh, over i think he said about eight ten years pushed the culture to start bringing in an annual standard and they have almost like a kind of cpat-esque annual test that they do but now there is an element of of punitive as well now they've spent years and years and years and obviously there's you know if you don't get to this point then there's mediation you know there's coaching that's getting you back up to where you need to be but i've heard now a few agencies which is so so encouraging where they're like all right well here's the bar though and over several years they slowly bring it in back to where it needs to be if you 
really what it boils down to is if you're not willing to put the work in to get to where you need to be, then I'm assuming there's some sort of lateral movement to admin, you know, prevention, whatever, whatever outlets there are, but you're not riding a truck, you know, being given the responsibility to save a child from a 21st story and not having the ability to do it because that's the, you know, the hard truth. So with your current department, is there an element of, of a standard set or is it still just a test that you get to do, but there's no, um, punitive element if you don't meet that standard? Yeah, no. So the, the department that I work for has a similar standards to what you guys are talking about. So our standard is to, to get 12 mats per year. And if you don't get 12 mats, then you get to work with, uh, the wellness coaches and, and strength coaches and you're put on a program. Um, and you're given time to, you know, try and, like you said, if you want to put in the work, you have all the resources that you need to get back to the standard. Um, and if not, then, you know, there is punitive, like you're, you're not going to be online and, uh, you, you could lose your job as well. Um, I, I think that's, some people might not like this, but from a strength and conditioning standpoint, from a coach, from an athlete, um, I think that's great because like I said, um, there's going to be a lot of people that don't, don't like me saying this, but the standard of 12 is not, is not hard. Um, I'm a 40 year old person or, you know, male and it it gets harder as you get older. Um, but if you're putting in the work, uh, it's not unachievable by any means. So, um, I think it's great, um, to have the standards and to have the support from the department. Now, if you don't have the support, you know, then that's a problem. Um, so I think it's okay to have, you know, um, a, a program where it's punitive, but you do have to have support and the resources and be supportive of, of, of your employees and people to be able to, to achieve the standard and the goals that you set for your department. So, yeah, well, I think that's the problem that I've seen with a lot of discussions the last, you know, I mean, my whole career, like 14 in and the three years post, um, where there's a lot of blame storming to quote that one advert, you know, where, oh, it's, it's admin. If they just do this, oh, it's the firefighter. If they just do this. And it's like, no, it's both like ownership. Absolutely. Like it is very clear. If you're a Florida firefighter, where you walk through the door, our certification process is called minimum standards. It could not be labeled any clearer. That is the least amount that you're going to have to be able to do. And, you know, what we're asking people to do deep in their career they they would never be able to pass that minimum standards. You know, it's hard, the minimum standards, and it's a great standard to set. Um, but uh, conversely, as we talked about with the shifts, when you look at the effect of sleep deprivation on the human body and what that does to the hormone levels, the obesity, the the diabetes, the um, obviously the mental health, but even the weight gain, you know, the, the, the impact definitely sets our men and women up for failure. So to me, the, the, the magic bullet is that you have both those parallel arguments. If you bring the bar up and you give people the tools to, to stay in great shape and then you give them a work environment where they have the rest and recovery, I don't think you would see obese policemen all over the place, you know, firefighters, you know, engineers climbing off their, their fire engine and then the suspension lets go when they step off the step you know which i've seen and it's heartbreaking because i'm sure those men and women were once you know young vibrant kids that love to play and run and jump and you know this is where they are now so but there is no downside 
from a performance point of view, as I tell people, imagine if your kid died because the responder didn't train. That's a sobering yeah. thought. But then from a, you know, affection towards the men and women in our profession, you want them to live as long as possible after they retire and enjoy the fruits of the labor and their family sacrifice for doing this job. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing people, you know, more often than not pass away just a few short years after they leave this profession. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that we could talk about. Um, but like you're saying that this is the the VO2 of 42 or 12 nets, that's a minimum standard. If you look at, you know, some of the studies like I was talking about, I mean, when you're when you're searching and rescuing and advancing a hose line for fire, I mean, you're you're tapped out. You're a hundred percent maxed out. Like I, I have a polar heart rate monitor and I use sometimes in training. And my heart rate gets up to 193. Like that's my VO2 max heart rate. Um, so that's why that that's why we have sudden cardiac death in the fire service is because you have all these different factors, right? I'm not saying it's easy. Like you're saying, there's all these different factors of sleep and hormones and diet. I mean, there's so many different factors. Um, but at the end of the day, like most of the time, yeah, you're probably not going to be fighting a fire right? It's 1% of what we do in our job, right? We're, it's, you know, 80% medical. Um, we could talk about so many different things, but at the end of the day, when you have to perform to save somebody's life and you have to get 18 Mets or your VO2 of 70 to do this job, to save that person, to save your fellow firefighter, um, that's something that you have to do. Um, and if you can't do it, then you're a burden to yourself. You're a burden to the citizens and your own department. And that's what happens to, to most of these sudden cardiac death or heart attacks is they might be able to do the job, but their body's not used to performing at that level and it can't recover. And that's when they have the heart attack and die. So it's a very complicated thing. It's not easy to solve. Um, and, and I know I make it sound like that, um, but if you're dedicated as a, as a firefighter and as a, you know, an athlete, as a person, um, you have to be very regimented. Um, you need to have good sleep hygiene. I go to sleep at nine o'clock, whether I'm at home or I'm on shift. Um, you know, there's times I want to stay up and watch movies with my crew and hang out and stuff, but I know that we're probably going to get calls and I go to sleep at nine and then we get a call at one o'clock and my crew is still watching a movie, but I've got four hours of sleep. Uh, it's not the best, but it's getting four hours of sleep's better than what they got. Right. So there's all these life choices that we have um, that help um, alleviate all these horrible things that the fire service does to you. Um proper nutrition, sleep hygiene, all these things that we can do to, to try and help alleviate all the issues and problems um, that come with the job. Yeah. No, I was very much with you, especially towards the end of my career when it came to the sleep. Like I, I was, you know, I don't think I could barely ever remember. I, I tell you this, in 14 years, I never had a goose egg. I never had a shift with no calls. And I worked all over the place, either side of the, this country. But I was that, you know, not black cloud as far as everything was always terrible. But yeah, I mean, we always got calls. So as you said, even when you're asleep, you're, if you're 14 years of always having at least one call, you know damn well you're going to wake up. So you're never, ever going to go in that deep sleep. 
but I yeah. subscribe to what you said. I would normally go, you know, nine, ten, the latest for that thing. If we get banged out, eleven, twelve, one, two, three, whatever, that's still one, two, three, four, five hours of sleep that I got versus if I'd sat in the lazy boy and watched, you know, whatever that I can just, you know, wait and watch another day. So yeah, that's definitely uh, one thing we can control. Yeah. So with the programming, you touched on that before, you know, obviously this, you know, the, the shift element isn't going to change overnight. I hope that the more conversations that happen, the more there's a push for it. But with people on 2448s, on, on 4896s or, you know, the other versions, um, what advice do you give to people as far as programming, especially if there's a, a, a more intense element? Um, you know, which of those days to actually put that on? Because, I mean, you know, as I've learned during this, for example, the day you come off your 90, excuse me, your 48 is probably not the best day to do MRF. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of research behind this from not only the, the central nervous system, right? Your sympathetic nervous system has been hammered for the last 24 or 48 hours, right? So when you come off shift, it's good to do that long, slow distance or that, that easy cardio session. Right. But then you have the mentality of the firefighter where you're going balls to the wall, every workout, you're doing high interval training, you're doing a workout of the day, you're doing some type of CrossFit or, you know, CrossFit or some type of circuit training. Um, not only because we enjoy it, but because you have that mentality that you always have to work out at this really high level. Um, and that's counterintuitive if you look at the, the science behind having a high VO2. Um, yes, it's great to do interval trading, but you also have to work in those lower levels. So understanding that coming off shift is a great time to have, you know, that low, long, slow distance cardio, some meditation, an easier workout. I'm not saying you can't lift. I lift every day of my four day usually, um, but I'm not doing a crazy leg day when I get off shift, I'm doing a, a you know, a low level version of, of a workout um, to help with the recovery of not only the mind and the central nervous system, um, but also cortisol levels. So if you get a low, you know, a, a lower intensity workout in, that's going to help with your cortisol levels from, from being, um, you know, sympathetically, strung out, so to speak, over your shift. So there's a lot of research um, and data proven to have a, a, a lower intensity workout coming off shift. And then you can use those other days to have those higher intensity workouts um, because we need those uh, before you go back on shift. So there's no right or wrong way to do this, um, but you do have to think about programming to where you can recover a little bit from shift and you can get a couple hard lifts in before I go back on shift. And that's for me with a 4896. If you're working 2448, um, I'm, that's even, that's just a horrible schedule for recovery and then for programming. Um, because I mean, you can't get enough recovery in 48 hours, um, especially when you need to lift. Um, especially if you, if you ran 20 calls, right? Um, that first whole day is, is going to be recovery and sleep. And then the next day you're, you're mentally changing over to going back to work. You're mentally, you're mentally getting prepared to go back to work. You're physically preparing lunches, you know, uh, 
pre-planning, um, meal planning and doing all this thing, like you're already back in work mode. You never have a rest on a 24, 48 schedule. I think that's a horrible schedule. Um, but long story short, you ask about programming, um, trying to stay on topic, but you, you need to have that low, slow, long, slow distance, lower intensity workout coming off shift. And then you can have a couple of hard workouts in between. It's hard because you, you want to work out hard and get those benefits, but you also don't want to have those residual effects from your training to when you go back on shift. So that's what's hard about programming and training for, for tactical athletes. We don't have that predetermined competition schedule as, a, as an athlete does, right? Hey, we're playing basketball and we have a game every three days or we're playing in the NFL, we got a game on Sunday or we're playing and you're an Olympic athlete and you know you got Olympic trials here and then you have your, your competition in you know two months and you train for that two months. Like we don't have that luxury. I have to be ready to go for that 48 hour shift, but I still need to train hard. So that's where the complexity of training comes in and it's really hard. There's no right or wrong. There's many ways to do it. Um, that's just what makes it so hard. Yeah. Well, you talked about coming off shift. I know it's, I'm sure this will resonate with other people too. I, again, with all that sporting background as an athlete, as a coach, as a you know a graduate, still subscribe to the I'm going to go work off some stress. You know, I'm going to sweat it out and. I remember like one specific time, this is after Jeff had, you know, so this in my mind, there was other stuff going on too, but doing, you know, it was a CrossFit workout, there was a snatch and, you know, snatch is, is complex. It's never been an easy movement for me. And I remember just, it made it worse. I was so frustrated that I couldn't snatch that day and I caught myself and I was like, all right, let the barbell drop, go outside, we're going for a run. And I just ran for like a, I don't know if it was a mile. A mile slow run. And by the time I came back, I felt so much better. And that was a real kind of wake up moment of the application of that. Like if you add stress to stress, there's no such thing as, you know, crushing a workout and getting rid of that stress. If you are already stressed and you do a stressful workout, you're compounding it, not de-escalating it. Yeah. And that's what we have to really talk about. And that's what I love your podcast because you have all these amazing people that come on and talk about this stuff and I hope that people listen um, because the information that's being shared is, is amazing. And I hope that it changes people's outlook on how they're training um, because I was the same way. Like I come off shift and it was in my mind that I was going to go crush legs. Well, as I get older, um, you know, I'm like, well, maybe today's not the day, right? Like it's, it's just not meant to be like, I'm going to train, how, how, how do I feel today? Right. There's a lot of programs in athletics where you do pre-screens. Like, how do you feel today? Did you sleep? Do you have family stress going on? Like, how do you feel? And they, and the athletes do that survey. And then as a strength coach, you have to change the workouts, right? Like I, I can have some crazy, great workout planned, but if the athlete's not physically, mentally, and recovered for the, that training program, it's not going to be good for the athlete and it's not going to be beneficial. So you need to change it. So it's the same thing in the fire service. You got to listen to your body and you need to chill out coming off shift. 
<laughs> no, I agree 100%. Like I said, observational in myself. Um, another question for you. When I have programmed, you know, even the class I teach now um, is still aimed at the tactical athlete. And it's it's really a combination of some of the strongman stuff, some foundation training, some more thing, you know, like a fusion of all these things. But what I found overall for my training is a combination of CrossFit and strongman has worked very well for me. We've got some very good programming in our, our gym here, great coaches. Um, but where it definitely lacks for me is weight over distance, push, pull, drag, carry kind of thing. So with your, you know, you obviously got sporting background, there's, there's specificity in some of that training. What are some of the movements or modalities that you like to use when training the tactical athlete? Yeah, so for me, the last few years, I've really come down to, I, I like using um, undulating block periodization. Um, the last year and a half or so, I've, I've really dove into the conjugate system of training. Um, and those two I like for strength and power. Um, I do believe that circuit training, CrossFit, whatever you want to call it, right? that's where I use the specificity of training in those movements. So where you're doing a sled drag or a sled pull, right. That's going to mimic, you know, a, a dummy, a victim drag or um, a hose pole um, for fire attack, um, you know, sledgehammer stuff in the transverse plane um, for forcible entry. Um, there's a lot of things and movements that you can do that are specific to the fire service that you can put into a very well-programmed circuit training um, or CrossFit workout, so to speak. Right. Um, so you can get your good strength training in um, with block periodization and, or the conjugate system or some type of um, combination of the two. Right. So you do have periodized periodized planning of improving your strength and power but then you still have that, um, you know, circuit training. And I, I think it's good to do circuit training on shift. It builds crew continuity team. Um, you know, I think you should work out on shift. I work out on shift. You just have to be smart about it. Um, and you can't be going all out on shift. Um, there's a lot of research that, you know, if you work out, you have the residual effects, right? Your performance is going to be, um, 10% less um, based on the recovery from your workout. So if you do work out before shift, the day before shift, on shift, you know, you're not going to be able to perform at the highest level you can because of the, resi the residual effects and your body's recovering from the workout. Um, I hope that answers the question. No, no, and it does. And I think that one of the big arguments is, you know, should you work out on shift or not? And what I found is that often is used as an excuse not to work out, period. Well, you know, I don't want to be tired for a fire. And I would be very interested to see what a t tired post-exercise firefighter's performance on the fire ground, meaning, you know, you get banged out halfway through a workout. And again, I'm not talking about murphing gear in the Florida yeah. sun. You know, I'm talking about <laughs> a normal kind of, you know, 70% exertion type workout um, versus the overall performance of someone who's deconditioned because they use that as an excuse. And I guarantee you the workouts on, sh on shift, even with some fatigue, probably far outworks the people that 
allow themselves to kind of use that as an excuse and not to work out. So that's always a thing. I mean, yeah, you have to be sensible. Don't, you know, don't superset legs and you can't even step down off the tailboard <laughs> with the hose line. Yeah. But on the same time, you know, we're human beings. Like we used to live in the woods and fight bears and, you know, do incredible things with our body. We're not China dolls. So you can go and work out. And if you get banged out, you get banged out. Drink some water on the way and then just go make it happen. You know, as you said, the chances of us getting a fire, like the the number of workouts that I would have missed had I thought, well, I'm not going to do it today because what if we get a call would be in the hundreds. And I never did, you know. So, you know, even in a very, very busy station that I was at. So, yeah, I think I agree with you 100%. Choose your exercises wisely, but don't be deterred by working out on shift. Yeah, and I was listening to a podcast before um, the Dr. Mark Abel from the University of Kentucky. They've done research on this, and you're exactly right. So, you know, they found out that roughly doing the workout on shift, you're going to perform at 10% less. But somebody who works out on shift and is in shape, 10% less, they're still outperforming somebody who's sedentary and doesn't work out. So it's all common sense. You just have to work out and, and not kill yourself um, and maintain some sensi- some sensible workouts while you're on shift, you know? Absolutely. Well, one more area I want to get to before we go to some closing questions, a unique stressor and, and probably absolutely the the main factor of when I was ready to tap out was not the actual exertion was not the the demand it was the heat so with you coming from you know different different sports and coaching you know what have you seen as far as doing the work that we do but in bunker gear that is un- just relentless when it comes to not dissipating heat yeah so i've been doing a lot of speaking and and talking about program design and the gear and we have amazing personal protective equipment that protects us, but it is physiologically, you know, horrendous as far as the physiological effects, what happens to the body, what happens to the blood chemistry, the plasma, um, the heat dissipation, the increase in heart rate, the increase in blood pressure, just all this stuff. The, the gear, um, it, it, it makes the job so much harder. Um, and you can go back to the VO2 max again. Um, if you look at a VO2 max, I'm, I'm just doing this presentation uh, this coming week for the NSCA, and I got slides showing a 219-pound nail, and you get the full gear to do roof stuff, and you're at 363 pounds. That's 143 pounds of gear. That's before you do any work. That's before you have to rescue somebody. That's before you have to pull a hose. That's before you have to do walk up the high rise with the the high rise packs. So if you're if your VO2 is 16 um and then you get 140 pounds of gear, you go from 16 to 9 and that's before you do anything. You know, th- that's why I get so passionate about this because you know, people get frustrated in the fire service um because of these standards, right? And they don't understand them and that's why I'm trying to to educate and talk about it because that I think that puts it in perspective as a firefighter and then also to me as a strength coach. So I'm 170 pounds and I put another 140 pounds of gear on, like doing the job is going to be so much harder. Um, there's research that proves doing 
the CPAT in your gym attire and then doing a CPAT in gear, it's, it's 40% or 44% longer to do the same tasks in gear because it's heavy, because of the physiological um, demands that the, the gear puts on you because it doesn't dissipate the heat, right? It traps it. Um, so the gear is great. It protects us, but it also makes the job just so much harder um, to do. And that's what I'm trying to, to preach and educate firefighters on and coaches that, that work with tactical athletes, um, specifically in fire, so that they can understand, um, you know, what we go through. And they can put gear on and they can train in, in some training environment and we can, you know, get a fake fire and they can go in and, and, and feel that. But that's completely different than running an actual fire and running an actual call and having to save somebody or, you know, it, it, you can only train so much. And I think it's good for strength coaches to, to get that experience, but they're still never going to understand the full capacity of what actually being a firefighter on a real call is because you can't simulate that. Now, have you come across anyone at all who has, any sort of uh, what would be the right word technique kind of aha moment on how to improve conditioning in the actual gear because I mean I did you know, it was more I think honestly just mental toughness like I used to work out in gear all the time um, yeah but it always sucked like I never felt like I really got any better I just got better at dealing with it but there didn't seem to really be a physiological response like I was never you know, all of a sudden walking around like, oh, this is fine now. I've done eight weeks of gear training. But I just think it, you know, it, it you just move that suffering bar even more. So did you come across anyone at all that had some sort of programming that would help improve our performance in gear? No, I have not. Um, and from like you're saying, personal perspective, like I've, I've worked out in gear a decent amount when I was pretty new to the fire service. And uh yeah, there's, there's nothing that I did that made anything any better working out in my gear. Um, and I don't know of anybody um, that has any research um, that proves working out in gear or working out in equipment, working out with your SCBA. Um, none of that stuff improves your fitness. I think it, I think it helps mentally, like you're saying, the mental suck of it, right? Um, but there's no research proven that I know of um, that says working out in gear is going to make you better. Your body doesn't adapt to that. Um, you know, the mindset is, well, if you work out in gear and you're hot, then your body's going to make those physiological changes and adaptations. And that's just not, that's not what happens. There's no research that backs that up. Um, and from a cancer standpoint, right. There's all kinds of different thought processes on this, but for me, we know that the gear causes cancer because of of research studies from dupont like just putting the gear on it 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 gives you cancer even the clean gear, gear gives you even clean gear even brand new gear gives you cancer and then you go use it in fires and you can clean it and you can have it sent off and professionally cleaned it still has carcinogens in it so i'm definitely not a huge fan of working out in your gear i only use my gear when i have to at work and in training. Other than that, I do not put the gear on. 
Um, because even if you have the money and you spend four grand on bunker gear, that's brand new and you only work out in it, you're still getting carcinogens from the brand new gear. Um, I don't know that that could be a touchy subject, right? Like I, I understand the premise behind it. Um, there's just no research or data, um, to prove that working out in gear helps. And even if there is, what, what is the percentage of increasing your, risk of getting cancer because you're wearing the gear more, right? Um, it's a tough, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. Actually, I'm getting a guess on it. Reminds me, I need to circle around with him again, but he was a lawyer in a big uh, case where I think like a whole uh, town was being poisoned by a, you know, a factory upstream, as it were. And he now is invested in this whole topic as well with the cancer stuff in our gear so that's someone that i want to get on the show to learn more i mean i don't i'm not that well versed but i trained a lot in gear you know it's kind of scary to think that i did everything right i had clean second set that i would use like a you know out of action set um i actually uh i think it was john spira who you know works in the area now as well i don't know if it ever came to fruition but he was talking about creating a you know a workout set that didn't have the fire retardant capabilities, but it had the heat encapsulation. So it would mimic it, you know, and I'm like, well, that's actually a brilliant idea if you're ever able to pull that off. Um, but again, yep. like you said, to, to, to what end? So again, focusing on, you know, aerobic capacity, strength, mobility, that seems like it's, you know, the biggest bang for its buck. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of smart people that you could get that know and understand the thermal effects of exercise and all the physiological changes, um, you know, I'm not an expert in that. I understand it, but, um, I think you could get somebody on like that and they're, they're going to tell you that, you know, working out in gear is not, it's not going to make a, a big enough impact, um, to, to work out in gear, like just working out in normal gym attire, um, working on strength, flexibility, that's what you need to do. Yeah. Well, I think I do like load. So I've started even walking my dogs with a, with a loaded pack. You know, I use the the vest quite a lot. Um, so that's another thing because come hell or high water, you know, unless it's a AFA that's known false alarm, everything else you're going to be walking in with a pack. So at least having that that um, strength under load, that that be able to relax and not feel foreign when it's strapped to your back, I think that's that's a great tool that puts all that weight centrally around your body rather than the pack, you know, dragging you from behind. Yeah. And that's a good point. I think weight, weight, weighted training is great, um, for that aspect. Um, and you're still going to get a little bit of change in center of gravity and gait, like our gear does for us. Um, but you can train with weight and you get all the benefits without the cancer risk because it's not your gear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to transition some closing questions so I can let you go. The first one I'd love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. So I've read all the, the Jocko and and Leaf books. Um, You know, that's not new. Everybody knows that. I just read a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Um, I thought that was really good. It, it, it focused uh, talking about like resiliency and grit and what is grit and are you born with it? Um, can it be learned? Uh, I, I thought it was a, was an interesting read. Um, and then uh, I've, unfortunately I've been reading a lot of uh, 
fire leadership books and stuff for uh, promotional testing. So uh, I haven't done a lot of fun reading lately, <laughs> uh, but those would be the two books that I would, I would kind of throw out there is, uh, was, was grit. And then uh, any of the books by Jocko or leaf. Perfect. All right. Well then what about a movie and or documentary? Movie or documentary. Um, Boy, I haven't really watched a whole lot of documentaries lately. Um, the last, the last movie that I watched um, was a was a Disney movie with my kids. <laughs> Which one was it? Uh, it was Cars. Um, so my son's, you know, four and a half, and that was the first movie that he he kind of sat through it. <laughs> uh, you know, their attention span so short um, that you know, it's hard to get them to watch movies. So I don't really have a good movie to, to throw out there because I don't watch many lately, but uh, I guess if you have time and can check out cars, it's, it's fun. Yeah. No, <laughs> my little boy was running around screaming Kachow for probably two years straight. So yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, so there's a couple of people that come to mind. I kind of spoke about them when I was, you know, talking with you, but um, Dr. Mark Abel from the University of Kentucky and Dr. Jay Dawes from the University of Oklahoma. Um, I, I think that, uh, again, they, they both have a lot of research going on to help the fire community out on training and on, uh, you know, things to do appropriately. Um, just been great resources for me and uh, very willing to help me, um, you know, try and help share my passion. So I'd highly recommend both of those guys, um, as well as uh, another one, John Hoffman. I don't know if you've had him on. Yeah, John's been on. Um, yeah, so you've already chatted with him, but another great guy, amazing resource, um, and just a force in the uh, tactical arena for fire. So Beautiful. All right, well, then the next question before we get to where people can find you, what do you do to decompress? So I, I've, you know, working out um, is one. I love mountain biking. So it's a good way to work out, but get outside. Um, and then I've also started, you know, meditating um, um, more. Uh, and that, that was frustrating for me at the beginning because my mind wouldn't shut off. Um, but I've really been trying to make sure I do that a lot more. Um, and listening to, you know, some peaceful meditation music, whether it's guided meditation, um, just trying to expand my, my horizons and try different things, but really just working out mountain biking and trying to take some relaxation time for myself. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure people, you know, would, would love to kind of pick your brains further or maybe, you know, find some of the presentations that you're putting out there. So where are the best places to find you or reach out to you online? Yeah, I guess the best way to reach out to me would be just my email. Um, it's jimmymax72 at gmail. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't do a whole lot of social media stuff. So I have LinkedIn as basically I don't, I don't do Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. Um, I just don't have time. Um, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn or that email um, would be the best way to reach out to me. And yeah, I'm more than willing to try and help out 
you know, in any way I can or, or connect people with, with, uh, other people that, uh, you know, can help them out or whatever, any way I can to help. So brilliant. Well, Jim, I just want to say thank you. Like I said at the beginning, this, this was a great conversation because you have a unique lens as a coach going into the fire service. Um, you know, and then the parallels between the sporting athletes and the tactical athletes that you work with. So thank you so much for coming on the show and being so generous with your time today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully somebody took something from it. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to come chat with you and share my passion. I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.